How soon are we to Christ's second coming? And what did Christ say must occur before He comes? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. I'm Kevin Harris, and today, Pat welcomes a special guest, Pastor Peter Tsukahira. He's a Japanese-American who is now a citizen of Israel. And in this presentation before a live audience, you'll hear stunning evidence that Jesus' words in Matthew 24 are quickly taking place. As you listen today, please stop by our website, evidenceandanswers.org. There you have access to a multitude of audio and written material from Dr. Zucharin on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism and Pat's new book, The Apologetics of Jesus, co-written with Dr. Norman Geisler. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now let's go to Pastor Sukahira for part two of his message called God's Tsunami. Rome, of course, was corrupt. And Rome, of course, was arrogant and proud and cruel. And eventually, Rome began to crumble and weaken. And you know from your study of history that what eventually happened to Rome was that Rome was, was conquered by the barbarians. I think uh, my books would say sacked by the barbarians. Okay, so after this period of, uh, of decadence, uh, these semi-civilized, savage, primitive, pagan tribes from the north came down and, and conquered what was once the mighty empire. Who were these semi-civilized, primitive, savage, pagan tribesmen? Who, who were they? Well, they were the French. They were the British. They were the Germans. They were the Austrians. They were the Swiss of today. But of course, then they didn't have those names. They were the Huns and the Goths and the Visigoths and the, the Franks and the Normans and uh, the Druids and the Celts and the Angles and the Saxons. They had all of these, uh, these, these tribal names. And they had their own religions. They had their own mythologies. They had their own gods. They worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars. They had, they had uh, sacred waterfalls and sacred groves. And um, this message of, of, of the kingdom was totally foreign to them, totally foreign to them. And I think it's important for, for people to realize that, that when the gospel first came to Europe, what a difficult thing it must have been to preach to these people. I mean, imagine going to some, being sent to some, some Germanic tribe deep in the forests, you know, of what is today Germany. And it's your job, you're gonna convince them that some Middle Eastern holy man from a place they've never been, from a people that they've never met, who's written about in a book that they've never read, is their God and their king, and that he demands their allegiance and demands their worship. I think it would be pretty difficult. The, and really, the miracle of what became Christian Europe is that they believed this foreign message, this alien message. Not only believed it, but they took this, this foreign gospel, this foreign understanding, and they made it their own. And they took it to the roots of their culture. And this gospel that had saturated the Greek-speaking world and had invaded the Roman world now began to roll across Europe like a tidal wave. And everything that it touched, it totally changed. It changed the way they, they wrote their songs. It changed the way they painted their pictures. It changed the way they designed their buildings. It changed the way they raised their families. It changed the way they educated their young people. It, it changed the way they wrote their laws. It changed everything about their society. They owned it. 
They said, this is no longer a foreign message. This is our message now. Even to the extent that, that many people today, and I travel around the world a lot, and many people today think that Jesus must have been born in Sweden because they've seen so many pictures of him as, you know, as a blonde, blue-eyed messiah. You know, and after having lived in the Middle East for more than 20 years, I can tell you with great confidence, he didn't look like that. You know, he definitely did not look like that. But it's a testament to how thoroughly these European pagans accepted this new message. And it began to, to transform every area of their society to the extent that, that whenever they built a new town, uh, the first building they would build would be a house for God. And it was always the biggest, tallest, most impressive house in the entire town. And then after they finished that, then they would build their own houses, their own businesses around it. It was really kind of amazing. Fifteen years ago, we started a building project on Mount Carmel. And when the time we started, we didn't know that it would be the only building built by a messianic congregation in Israel for the, for the purpose of worship in modern times. We just didn't know about that until, until we were half through and then someone came and told us, you know, are there any other buildings like this? And we said, well, no, we don't think so. They said, well, when was there ever a building that Israeli Jews used to worship Jesus in? And we looked around and we couldn't find one. And it took us five years to build that building. Five years of prayer, fasting, negotiation, fundraising. And then for three years, we, people in our congregation, we actually went out there and physically built along with about 500 other volunteers. So five years later, we had a building to worship the Lord. And we were exhausted. I mean, we were totally burned out. We were ready to promise God that we would never engage in that kind of activity again. In these building projects, you probably know that here in Wintersburg, it's a prescription for pastoral burnout. I mean, you've got to have the right people to do it, okay? And, and let them do it, okay? Anyway, five years of our lives we invested in building that building. But, you know, these houses for God that the Europeans built, five years was nothing. Some of the houses for God that they built took over 200 years to build. I mean, think of that. Think, I mean, if you think that the Crystal Cathedral <laughs> is something impressive, okay? Think about starting a building project that maybe your great-grandchildren will finish, that everyone will work on for three or more generations. Okay? What is a society saying when they start projects like that and complete them? They're saying, this is important. This message, this is the center of gravity. This is the foundation. This is what we believe. This is, this is what our civilization is built on. This message, this God. And so when we built him a house, we're not fooling around, okay? And, and what happened in Europe? Well, I'll tell you what happened. God showed up, and he started to bless them, and he started to make them rich, and he started to make them powerful, and he started to make them dominant. I mean, for better or for worse. I mean, they weren't, you know, they weren't, obviously they were far from perfect, but the fact of European dominance is irrefutable. They towered over the, what other civilizations in the world had achieved up until that time. Now, were the, were the Europeans smarter than everybody else? Did they work harder than everybody else on the planet? No way. I mean, the Chinese had invented gunpowder centuries before the Europeans even knew what that might be useful for. The, the Arabs were far more advanced in mathematics than the, than the, than the Europeans. But why did Europe begin to ascend to such, such great heights? I'll tell you why. It's because in Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul received a word from God and a vision 
of a European man, and the European man said, come over and bring this gospel of the kingdom to us, because if you bring it to us, we'll, do, we'll take it to the roots of our culture. We'll build God a civilization. Let me show you some of the evidence of that. Just, you know, I'm sure you're aware of these things. These are some of these houses for God, one uh, in England and one in France, but they're all over, right? I mean, they're everywhere. Um, there, you know, there was a time in, in what became Christian Europe, okay, what, I mean, they came out of their paganism and their tribalism and what became Christian Europe, there became a time when if you were an artist, it didn't matter whether you were a believer or a non-believer. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that Michelangelo was a believer. Who knows? Or Leonardo da Vinci, probably not. But I'll tell you one thing, the culture of their day demanded that they do biblical themes, okay? The culture said, this is important. If you're going to do real art, you're going to do art about the Bible, period. Okay, that's, that's what happened in Europe. That's this transformation, the power of this, of this uh, incredible gospel of the kingdom. And so they, these guys went to work and produced masterpieces that we honor today. This man in the middle, that's uh, Frederick Handel, and a composer, and he's representative of the whole genre of European composers. And, you know, even the non-believers, he was a believer. He wrote, he wrote that wonderful uh, tune, you know, the Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus. People still worship, you know, to that uh, music today because it's, it's inspired. He was a real believer. And so were many of, many of the others, but not all of them. But even the ones who weren't believers, the music they wrote, it expressed the Christian worldview. It was a universe of order. It was a universe of beauty. It was a universe of love. You listen to classical music today, they call it classical music, and it endures century after century after century because it's really painting the picture of a universe created by a loving, rational God. Okay, I mean, you know, like uh, our, our music today, you know, if it's, if it's famous for 15 minutes, I think that's, uh, that's doing well. I mean, these songs come and go, but the, the classical music that these men wrote has just endured, okay, because there's, there's something of God in it. And then God visited that, that society. And out of Christian Europe, then came important things like the rule of law. I mean, the, I, mean I don't even want to get into this, okay? But if you don't have that idea at, in, embedded in your society, you don't have democracy and you can't have free market capitalism. Both of those things are founded on the idea that you have good laws and you have good courts and you know what justice is and everybody is under the law even the kings i mean this was this was a concept a truth that came out of christian europe where did they get an idea like that well from the bible because god rules his kingdom like that god rules lawfully the, the, the creator of the universe limits himself to his word he says i'm going to rule you this way and i'm not going to change you learn this and we're good all right he makes it easy for us. That's the whole concept of his, his just rulership in his kingdom. That's where the Europeans got that. Then he, then he gave them science. Okay, I mean, what were they, smarter than everybody else? But all of a sudden, out of Europe comes this fountain of in, inventiveness and understanding and great scientists, men like Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton, first of all, he was, he was probably born again. You need to read what he wrote about the Bible. He loved Jesus and he loved God. He was more excited about God and the book of Revelation than he was about science. But he was gifted to be a scientist. And in his science, he believed that he was uncovering God's divine laws of the universe. He believed that he had, was privileged to be able to uncover the, the, the integrity of God's power in the physical universe. He believed he was working with God in his science. And so did many other of these, these European scientists. And from them came science and technology and wealth. And 
I mean, I wrote a, they discovered bacteria, penicillin, radioactivity, DNA, they pioneered electricity, they developed the radio, rocket science, radar, the first satellites, the steam engine, the automobile, the jet engine, Newton's laws, Einstein's relativity, all of it came out of Europe and more. I mean, that's just the things I could think of in about 10 minutes. And it made them rich and it made them powerful and they began to just tower over the rest of the nations. Then what happened? I'm telling you, this is big picture, we're moving right along. What happened? To totally oversimplify, I'd like to say this. What happened was Christianity overachieved in Europe. Okay? It became too successful. The church dominated everything. To the extent that when there were new movements of the Holy Spirit and Christians who wanted to do things differently, like the early Baptists or the Puritans or the Quakers, who had a different revelation from God, they were actually persecuted by the church. Europe became, was, was too civilized now, too Christian now. Pagan Europe had been transformed. So what happened to those early Baptists? What happened to those Quakers and the, and the Huguenots and the, and the Mennonites and the, and, and the Puritans? Well, eventually they came to the conclusion that they would have to leave Europe. Europe was too civilized. So in which direction did they go? They went west. And west from Europe meant crossing the great Atlantic and coming to yet another barbarian land. This was before McDonald's and Carl's Jr. and ATM cash machines and super highways, okay? And many of them died on that, that, those, those weeks in those little wooden boats on the Atlantic. Many more of them died in those first winters in the New World because they were unprepared for the harshness of it. They didn't, they, but they persisted and they grew. And they, they, they endured. And why did they do that? I mean, when, you, when you read about the Puritans in New England, why did they stay? Why did they fight it out? There was no gold to be found there. They weren't going to get rich, and they knew it. Why? Because they didn't go to get rich. They went because they had a vision of a new society. You should read what the Puritans wrote. They wrote, we're, go we're going to go to the new world, and we will make a new Jerusalem for God. We will build a society that's based on his principles and the first thing we will do when we have the chance to write it into the laws of this new society, we will guarantee freedom to worship Jesus Christ. You know, the, the Puritans knew the entire Bible. They knew the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. They spoke and read better Hebrew than the rabbis of their day. They understood what it meant, what the gospel of the kingdom was all about. And they said, we are going to we're going to build a society where God rules every area of it. And God began to bless them. And the things that they wrote, you know, today, you know, this Proposition 8 that's uh, taking place, you know. You know what I think? I think that the idea of same-sex marriage was so far out, so beyond even the wildest imaginations or nightmares of the founding fathers, that they didn't even think about it when they, when they wrote the documents uh, like the Constitution of the United States. If they thought about it, they would have written it in there, okay? But it was just so beyond what they could have imagined would happen in the nation that they were founding. You should go back, I think every American should go back and read those documents like the Declaration of Independence. It's, it reads like a prayer today. They're constantly talking about God, the Creator, the Almighty, they ended with an appeal to him. They said the only reason we're doing this is because we're convinced this is God's way. God wants freedom. God wants this to take place. You know, this, was, this was, became the roots and, and the foundation of what became a nation known as the United States of America. 
And did God bless this nation? <laughs> of course he did. And did, did God see that the gospel of the kingdom went into every area of society? Yes, it did. I mean, you still have, in God we trust, on the money. Somehow, when, still, when you walk into an American courtroom, they hand you the Bible, they want you to swear that you're going to tell the truth on the Bible. Someone decided that. Someone made sure that that took place. And the reason that that happened through the society is because those founding fathers, they understood the Bible and they were motivated by biblical principles. And God blessed it. And God poured out inventiveness and science and technology and justice and goodness on this nation time after time. And every time the gospel appeared to get a little bit weak, he'd send another great awakening. You've had at least five massive waves of the gospel sweep through this country in the last 300 years, again and again. And then this country grew and it became rich and it became powerful and it became dominant. All right, you're not perfect for better or for worse, but the fact is irrefutable. You ended up towering over what had been achieved in Europe. What you achieved made everything that God had done in Europe look old and small because God blessed this nation and you became the greatest Christian nation, sending out missionaries and resources all over the world. Never has there have been a nation like this for the gospel. And during the same period, the gospel went out into Africa and out into South America. And now they're beginning to bubble with, uh, with revival. I mean, in, in incredible ways. The greatest Christian meetings in the world that take place regularly in Africa. You know, they have meetings of over a million people weekly in Lagos, Nigeria. A million people gathering in a public meeting. It's, it, it, that's people to the horizon. You can't see the end of that crowd, even from the platform. South America, various countries in South America really beginning to move in the, in the power of, of this gospel and in the power of the spirit. But what's happening in America? I think we'd all agree this nation is in spiritual crisis. And what you've been watching for the last 40 years, perhaps, is this steady erosion of the goodness that has made America great. And you're also watching the retreat of the church from the mainstream of culture. And the question is, is it going to turn around? And how can it turn around? And, and I, I believe you're in for a fight. Um, but God is shaking this nation and he's shaking it for good. If I believe if, if Christians will realize that, that God's actions to, to, to chastise America are, can be seen in a positive light, that it's time for the church to become, to become more proactive and to take back the marketplace and to take back the judiciary and to take back arts and entertainment and to take back the education system, okay? And not retreat to a, to a, a Christianity where you, the, the, almost the total criteria, the single criteria for success in ministry is how many come on Sunday, okay? If you have 500, that's good, 1,000 is better, 10,000, you're mega. That's the only way in some circles that they, that they measure pastors and it's totally, Erroneous. It's not the gospel of the kingdom. The real measure is how much impact are you having on your community and on your society? Are you really being salt and light? Because listen, church numbers come and go. But if you change your culture, if you change your community, you're going to leave something for the next generation to build on. And if you don't, you're leaving them nothing. Because like I said, church numbers are just how many people happen to be seated at a certain time in a particular building. It's really not a measure of the kingdom of God, and yet we've accepted it as such. And we put all of our focus on Sunday assembly, and we've taken our eyes off of society. So there's a crisis going on. There's a crisis going on in North America. There's a crisis going on in this country. And it's also because there's a crisis going on in the church. I think we're grasping for a new vision. But that's not the topic of my talk today. 
I'm talking about the gospel of the kingdom. If America is in crisis, will that stop the gospel of the kingdom? Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world to every nation as a witness, and then the end will come. And he's, so he's got a purpose. He's got a timetable. He's moving on. And so I'd like to show you what the gospel of the kingdom is doing right now in our generation. Where do you go west from Santa Monica? Hawaii. Someone said Hawaii. <laughs> Okay, a little bit further, you cross the Pacific and you come to a great continent called Asia. Okay, except now you're at the eastern edge of Asia. And in our generation, this gospel of the kingdom is crashing like a tsunami wave on the nations of East Asia. This is the same wave that saturated the Greek world 20 centuries ago. This is the same wave that transformed the Roman Empire. This is the same wave that, that changed and built Europe. Into, into a great Christian civilization. This is the same wave that came to the United States 300 years ago and continues to, to make this nation strong. But this wave is bigger now, much bigger. It's growing exponentially and it's moving faster now. And the edge of this wave is crashing into the shoreline of East Asia and rearranging the spiritual landscape. And I wanna give you just a few facts and figures just to give you an idea of the magnitude of what God is doing in our day. You're a Presbyterian church, right? Wintersburg Presbyterian Church. You know that the Presbyterians started out 500 years ago, the preaching of John Knox in Scotland. But where today are the biggest, the most vibrant, the most dynamic Presbyterian churches in the world? Are they in Edinburgh? Are they in London? How about New York, Chicago, Los Angeles? Where are the great Presbyterian churches of today? Seoul, Korea, okay. All of them, and, and they're big churches. I mean, we're talking 50,000 people and up, single congregations. The Methodists, Methodism started out the preaching of John Wesley, Oxford College students 300 years ago in England. Okay, but where today are the biggest, most vibrant, most dynamic Methodist churches in all the world? Are they in London? Are they in Scotland? Are they in Rome? Where are they today? Seoul, Korea. They're all in Seoul, Korea. And just like the Presbyterian churches, these are mammoth congregations, huge, tens of thousands of people in single congregations. The Pentecostal movement. The Pentecostal movement is an American movement. It started here, California, Azusa Street, Topeka, Kansas, just exactly 100 years ago. Out of that Pentecostal movement came denominations like the Assemblies of God. But where today is the greatest Assemblies of God church in the world, the greatest Pentecostal church in the world. And by the way, this particular church is the, is the greatest single congregation in the history of the world. It's called the Yoido Full Gospel Church, Dr. Yonggi Cho, 800,000 members, one church. That's not counting the churches that split off from him that he released. That's only counting the mother church and its satellites. Okay, if you count his disciples who went out and planted their own churches, we'd, you'd be in the millions there. Okay, so this is major, major church growth. I mean, think of a congregation of 800,000 people. A few years ago, I was invited with some other pastors, some other international pastors to visit Seoul. And we got to meet with Dr. Cho. And Dr. Cho said, I'm so happy that you've come to Seoul. And, uh, you know, I, I want you to come with me to an all-day prayer meeting. You know, the Koreans, they pray, right? Love to pray, all day prayer meeting. And so I told some of my cell leaders, you know, to bring their people and we're gonna pray all together for an entire day. So he said, okay, Dr. Show, where are we going? And he said, to the World Cup Stadium. So we got there, 60,000 people packed out 
in the rain. They're praying all morning in the rain. Okay, what, they're praying that it'll stop raining. <laughs> okay? They're praying all day in the rain. And then 20,000 more come in and sit down on the grass. 80,000 people packed out the stadium. 11 o'clock, the sun came out. Hey, okay, God answers prayer. And they prayed all day. Somewhere in the middle of the afternoon, I'm looking at this great crowd and just kind of marveling at it all. And then I thought, we're still only looking at 10% of his congregation. What does he do when he wants to meet more than 10% at a time? They have like 12 Sunday services. And like I said, it's not about numbers, but numbers indicate something. We're talking about major growth. Dr. Cho started with five people 50 years ago in a borrowed American military tent. So all of that growth in 50 years. But what God has done in Korea is small compared to what he's been doing in China. China, since the 1960s, has had the greatest revival in the history of the world. 20, 30, 40,000 new Christians every day for an entire generation. And you know what? The Chinese Christians that I meet are saying, it's not slowing down, it's beginning to accelerate. They're saying they're approaching 10%. They're between 7 and 10% of the total mainland China population now even though Christianity is illegal. It's roaring ahead. Well, we have run out of time, so let's pick it up there next time on Evidence and Answers. By the way, if you want to keep a quality apologetics program on the air and on the web, please support Evidence and Answers with your prayers and financial gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing the many resources we have online, including Pat's new book with Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus. So check out our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you can also invite Pat to speak at your next event, church, campus, or conference on the most crucial issues facing the world today and how the Christian worldview provides the best answers to the best questions. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Be sure and join us again for Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuccarin.